morning, I'd ask that we open our Bibles. Everybody say word. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 22, uh, and I hope you find yourself there in the passage or scroll there on your phone. Um, I've been enjoying our time in the book of Acts. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Uh, don't tell the first service this. Um, I am struggling to figure out how we're going to finish the book of Acts because it is a long narrative. And uh, I've been enjoying it, but I'm, I'm ready to get into another vein of discussion. So if you're okay with it, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to conclude our study of the book of Acts. We're going to kind of fly through the last six chapters. Any, any people who are like, no, I don't want that. I want to go slow. I'm the teacher. Rabbi. Rabboni. All right, well, I'm, I'll, we'll figure it out. But I, just to let you know, I'm listening to the Lord, and I want us to study the text. Every single syllable of the Scripture is important and valuable for our spiritual life. But just chew on that, and in the next couple of weeks, you're probably going to see a new sermon series. And, and really what's been on my heart is that concept of sacred space, allowing those spaces to exist in our spiritual life. And so that will be developed, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But this morning, we're going to talk about your story. And here's the reality. We all have one. And what I mean by a story, and this is the most important part of you, is when you gave your life to Christ, when Christ interrupted your life. And that is the best way I can describe it. It is an interruption. Because there is a direction and there are purposes and there's a trajectory of our life, where we are headed, the plans that we've made. And then all of a sudden, God interrupts our life. And our life takes on a whole different, different direction different pattern. We have a life where we were who we were before we met Christ. There is the moment when Christ interrupts our life, and then there is who we are and who we are going to become, and there should be a dramatic difference between those two lives. Now, for some of us, the story of meeting Christ is a dramatic encounter, as we're going to see here in the text. There is a dramatic story of how you came to faith. For some of us, maybe there's a sense of jealousy, or maybe you look at other people's story and you're like, well, my story isn't that good because, well, you know, I was just kind of saved. And No, every story is a radical story of salvation. And in fact, your story is one of the most important messages that you can share with people who do not, do not know Jesus. And I hope you see that clearly from the text this morning. We are going to see Paul deliver his powerful testimony to a large gathering of his fellow Jews, who, by the way, had just beaten him. And we're ready to stone him to death. And if it wasn't for the savvy leadership of the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, Paul would literally have been torn to pieces. As you all remember, last week Paul was, was trying to appease uh, those who were zealous for the law. And so he had, he had cleansed himself, ceremony had cleansed himself, and brought four guys with him into the temple. And they were performing their rites as a Nazarite. Towards the end of the week of the ceremonial cleansing, Paul was taken into custody uh, somewhere in and around the court of the, the Jews. And so here's the temple that we looked at last week. Here's the general court area or the court of the Gentiles. Uh, do you all remember what was placed at all of the entrances into the temple? you all remember what was placed there? What did the sign say, the concrete sign? All I heard was meh, 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 meh. What did it say? That no, no Gentiles were to enter into the temple. And if they did enter into the temple, what would happen to them? 
They'd be put to death. That is correct. And so Paul was inside of the temple proper, inside of the court of, the, of Israel, and there were Jews from Asia who saw Paul in there and who made all kinds of accusations against him. And one of the most inflammatory statements was that he brought Gentiles into the temple. And so they dragged Paul outside of the gates. These are the gates that were shut and most likely out of the common temple area or somewhere over here. Because it wasn't long, and what we don't realize, here is where the Roman military was posted, right connected to the temple. And so they hear news that there is an uprising starting in the temple, and so they immediately bring, the tribune comes out, Claudius Lysias and his soldiers, and they come and grab Paul, and they drag him into what is called the Fortress of Antonia. Here is an artist's rendition of the fortress of Antonia. And when it says that Paul literally had to be carried up the steps, these are the steps that are being referenced. There was a mob surrounding the, stair, the stairs yelling out for his blood. Paul had to be picked up by soldiers and gets carried up to this place right here. And he has a conversation with Claudius Lysias and asks for permission to speak to the crowd. Now, I don't know what message you would deliver to a group of people who just tried to tear you limb from limb, but we are about to see how Paul responds to that type of adversity, and it should be no surprise to us that more important, to his, more important than his very life was the gospel and the power of Christ to transform lives. And so it is no surprise, or it should be no surprise, that the message that Paul delivers is that message of how Christ changed his life. Backtrack. One verse for me, Acts chapter 21, verse 40. It says, when he had given him permission, that is when Claudius Lysias, that is when the tribune, the high-ranking Roman official in Jerusalem, gave Paul permission, he was standing on the steps and he motioned with his hands. So just think back at that, that image we just saw of the fortress of Antonia. He's standing at the top of the steps. He raises his arms. And when there was a great hush, everybody just go, I want, let's just experience that. Everybody go, hush. So there was a great one of those. Uh, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. I love this. He addressed them in their language. They all spoke Greek, but as Palestinian Jews, their primary language was uh, Aramaic. And so Paul delivers this message in Aramaic, which is ironic because the Roman garrison has no idea what he's speaking, which will be evident here in just a few moments. But Paul begins to speak in their language, which brings on an even greater hush. Can we hush again? Verse 1 of chapter 22. That was a great hush. That was wonderful. Uh, brothers and fathers, think about how respectful he begins to speak to a group of people who are literally just about to kill him. Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Excellent. I'm, I feel like I'm there. Do you all feel like you're there right now? And he said to them, I am a Jew. So he is going to, he's going to say to this crowd, hey guys, I was just like you. There are times where Christians start to elevate themselves over the exact people they used to be. Like, I will hear people often say things like, oh, I can't believe those people are all drugged out, and oh, I can't believe they're making all those bad decisions. And I'm like, who were you before you came, became a believer? Ah. Oh. Well, I was kind of drugged out, and I was making all kinds of bad decisions. I'm like, so what changed? What changed your life? Jesus. So why are you looking down on people who don't have Jesus yet? What's the issue there? There's a hard issue with that, right? 
So Paul speaks to them, and he says, look, brothers and fathers, very respectfully, hear the defense that I now make to you. He says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So Paul was brought up. He was born in the prominent city of Tarsus, but apparently his family came from some wealth because he was sent to basically boarding school, an Ivy League boarding school in Jerusalem. He says, look, I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, many of us have no idea who Gamaliel is, but he was the most respected teacher in ancient Israel. In fact, we have ancient documents of Judaism that sing his praises. He was considered one of the greatest teachers of the law and specifically of the vein of the Pharisees in the history of Second Temple Jerusalem. And he says, look, I was trained at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He's like, you want to talk about being zealous? I was the most zealous. In fact, according to Paul in his own testimony given in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was climbing the Pharisaical ladder. I had the degrees. I had the knowledge. And I had the zealousness to carry it out. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father back to Acts 22. And in that zealousness, I persecuted this way to the death. What was your pre-life? What was your pre-Christ life like? For some of us, we believe that our pre-Christ life keeps us from being used by Christ. And I'm going to argue from the life of Paul. I don't know. I don't know all of us in, by, uh, by relationship. I'm, I'm sure some of us had a pretty rocky pre-Christ life. I don't know if any of us persecuted Christians, dragged them off to prison, and had them murdered. Did you all do that? What is it that you did that you think God cannot forgive you of and then use you in spite of? Did you murder Christians? Well, I don't recall murdering anybody. The reality is God can and will use really messy people to bring about his perfect will. So he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as a high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He's like, hey, there are some among you who actually remember when I was so zealous for the law that I was persecuting Christians. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who had been there, bring them into bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's like, look, I was, as far as zealousness for the law, the most zealous. And not only was I most, most zealous, I got letters just so I could go to Damascus so I could upend and persecute every believer that I found there. Paul is sharing his pre-Jesus story. I think that is important when we share our testimony. Who and what were you before Christ got a hold of your life? Now, for some of us, you grew up in the faith. And there's this difficulty where we're like, I don't really remember ever not being a believer, but there was a point as an adult or a teenager, and I speak to teenagers right here, there is a point in your life where your faith is not your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith or your friend's faith. There's a point where it becomes your faith, where you make the decision to follow Christ. What was your pre-Christ story? And so Paul shares that, and in doing so, he then moves into when Christ interrupted his life. 
Verse 6, and I was, I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. This is a light that is brighter than the sun. And it left Paul and his fellow band of Jewish mercenaries on their faces. Something radical intervened. Verse 7, and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who's speaking to Saul at this moment? Is the Lord Jesus. Paul is sharing his testimony from 20 years prior. It's like Jesus interrupted my life. And I, I find it fascinating that Jesus speaks to Paul, why are you persecuting me? That when we persecute the church or Christians, it's Jesus who feels the blows. Verse 8, I answered, who are you? <laughs> Lord, this must be the Lord. Interrupting his life, he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Uh, what would you expect at this moment to happen to Paul? If, if you're in Paul's sandals, I'm sure he didn't wear sneakers, Paul's sandals, and you're on your face in the dirt, and the Lord Jesus just said, Saul, Saul, or Paul, Paul, or Larry, Larry, or Susie, Susie, or who, whatever your name is, you have persecuted me. What would you expect to happen? Yeah, punishment. From his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. You see, Jesus has the ability to see past our failings and recognize that once he gets a hold of us, the purposes and plans he has for us to walk in, we will fulfill. Verse 9. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking. This message was specifically for Paul. There are times where you're in a group of people, and God will speak directly to you. The message wasn't for the other folks with him. It was specifically for Paul. The Lord said to him, or he asked, what shall I do, Lord? Which I think is a great place to begin the Christian life. What shall I do? And the Lord said, rise. Go to Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. Talk about being humbled. I mean, Paul is now physically blind. It's a picture of his spiritual blindness. All of his degrees, all of his accomplishments meant nothing. He is now blind and being led into the city that he had so boldly approached, ready to persecute, and he comes in humbled, uh, being led by the hand. It says in verse, he spoke in verse 12, he said, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. See, he's utterly dependent. Christians are dependent people. Nobody comes to faith independent of another believer sharing the message. Ananias says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. I'll tell you, that was a difficult job for Ananias. If you all remember back to Acts chapter 9, Ananias was like, I'm supposed to go where and talk to who? Saul. He's the one that's persecuting us, Lord. He's being obedient. Radical obedience on display here. At that very hour, I received my sight. I saw him. I don't think that is just reference to Ananias. I think this is the first time he saw Jesus for who Jesus really is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. 
He said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. You want to talk about a radical paradigm shift? You want to talk about a crisis of faith? He just discovered everything he believed, everything he pursued, everything he was undertaking was wrong. And he's given sight. He's given the privilege of knowing God's will of seeing the righteous one and the wonderful privilege of being a witness to everyone of what he had seen and heard. Verse 16, Ananias then says, And why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Give your life to Christ, Paul. I believe this is very, I mean, it's very clearly this is Paul's conversion story, but it's very similar to our own, isn't it? Because there's a point in our life where we come to discover we are spiritually blind. And when those scales fall off, and we come to see Jesus for who he really is, we come to discover his will, we hear his voice in and through the scriptures, we see the righteous one by faith. It was Thomas who proclaimed my Lord and my God because he saw the nail marks, he saw the scar in the side of Christ, And Jesus said, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe though they do not see. Through eyes of faith we see the righteous one. And we ourselves are called to witness to what we've seen and what we've heard of what God has done in our life. We're just like Paul. And I love how Paul himself is told that he needs to repent of sin. This Pharisee is just as much a blind beggar as all of us. We all approach the cross in the same posture. Humble, dependent beggars needing grace. Paul turns to the Lord Jesus and then follows Christ in believer's baptism. This is such an important part of the spiritual journey. For some oddball reason, contemporary Christians seem to, like, forego that step. We place our faith in Christ, but then it's like, how important is baptism, really? It is a symbolic cleansing of your soul, a picture of commitment. Some see it as archaic and antiquated, but I'll stress it is one of the most important steps you make as a believer. You give your life to Christ, you trust in him, then you follow him in believer's baptism. There's a picture of no turning back. And so Paul goes on to tell his story. He left Damascus. If you all remember back to Acts 9, he had to be lowered out of a window down in a basket because the Jews at Damascus rejected his testimony, wanted to put him to death, and so he fled to Jerusalem. And in verse 17, he says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying, where was Paul when he was praying? Okay, Jesus is about to show up in the temple where Paul was praying. This is 20 years prior. It says, when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him. Who is him? I saw Jesus. And Jesus said to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. This must have been earth-shaking to Paul. He had been in Jerusalem since he was a little kid. And now the Lord Jesus is saying, hey, you've given your life to me. It's time for you to leave everything behind. That is a scary proposition. 
But I believe there is a time in every Christian's life where the Lord says, hey, leave it behind and make haste while you're doing it. They would not receive his testimony. He had just gone from being a zealous and celebrated persecutor of the church to becoming a preacher of the exact message he was being sent to eradicate. There was a radical shift and change in his life. Is that true of you? Has there been a radical shift and change in your life because Christ? The text goes on. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by. I was approving, watching over the garments of those who killed him. He's like, Lord, I am so guilty. I cheered on those who threw stones. Such recollections, right, D.G. Peterson, are designed to remind his audience that Paul himself was once vigorously antagonistic towards the Christians that, in a sense, he took Stephen's place as a witness. His change of direction and subsequent ministry can be explained only in terms of God's unmistakable intervention in his life. Is that what is reflected in our life? Unmistakable intervention? Paul then makes another statement, and this is really what sends the crowd, the crowd into just complete chaos. They could not receive his testimony, even though he's declaring what the Lord Jesus had told him. In verse 21, he said to me, this is the word that God gave to Paul while he was in the temple, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so here we are in Rowlett, we're like, yay, right? Because if God had not sent Paul to minister to the Gentiles... There'd be no us. And here we are. We're, we're Gentiles. We're celebrating. But this was no message or praise report to the Jews that were gathered around Paul this day. There was a deep-seated uh, sense of superiority of the Jews and of Israel above other nations. As you remember from last week, that stone that literally said anybody who was a Gentile who entered in, tried to enter into the presence of God through the court of Israel would be put to death. Paul is making the de declaration that through faith in Christ, both Jew and Gentile approach God the same way. Because you know what? Both Jew and Gentile approach God the same way. Through faith in Christ. That is why Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. There's no other door. There's no other path. There's no other place of realization or, or self-awareness that gets us into the presence of the Father. The only way into the presence of the Father is faith in Christ, whether you're Jew, uh, you're Jewish by lineage, or you're Gentile by lineage. Both Jew and Gentile approach him the same way, and we praise that, but they did not. That was too much for them to hear. It was inflammatory. Up to this word, they listened to him. The hush turned into a bunch of toddlers. I don't know how else to describe it. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for she, he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their clothes, again, toddlers, flinging dust in the air, I want my candy. If you don't believe me, that's how toddlers act. Go hang out with some toddlers. They don't get their way. I mean, they give you, if looks could kill, man, they would do it. I, I said I want Skittles. But here they are, they're, they're rejecting the message and the messenger. And they're acting 
like the, the prophets of old. They're tearing their clothes and they're throwing dust into the air. And at this point, verse 24, the tribune grabs Paul and brought him into the barracks. And he's like, you know what? I've had enough. I'm not going to sit here and try to flesh this thing out. I need to know why there is an uprising. And obviously, Paul, you're the problem. And so the Roman guard stretches Paul out and prepares him to be flogged. Or as the scriptures declare, listen to this, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. That is the most excruciating punishment that could be inflicted on a person who was being questioned to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Christ was flogged. Paul is about to be flogged. The comparisons are evident. And what would happen is they would stretch out the person that's to be flogged to stretch out their back, and they would use a whip that looked like this. It would have a handle on it, and it would have strings of leather, and at the end of leather would be pieces of bone and or metal. And as the person was stretched out, their back and legs and neck would literally be lacerated. And if you weren't rendered completely crippled by it, you would be dead. And so Paul is about to go through an excruciating uh, process of uh, being questioned, and, and most likely this would have been the end of Paul, but at that moment, verse 25, he leveraged something that he possessed. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, <clears throat> by the way, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? At that moment, the guards were like, uh-oh. See, what we may not realize is Paul possessed Roman citizenship, and it was very valuable. Very much like our United States citizenship is very valuable. It entitles us to certain rights. How many of you appreciate those rights? Right? Paul had certain rights, and one of those rights was due process, which we're very grateful for. You cannot be punished until you were first tried. Paul had not been put on trial. He is about to be punished, and all of a sudden, they realize, this Roman group of guards realize that they're about to break some serious Roman law. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune, this is Claudius Lysias, comes in and goes, uh, Hey, Paul, uh, are you a Roman citizen? Paul simply responds, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul's like, Oh, yeah? I was born this way. We don't know how it happened or where it happened or how it came about for Paul's family, but he grew up as a Roman citizen. And this guy, Claudius Lysias, had to pay for his citizenship, and he's about to lose it. By binding Paul and giving him, a, like flogging him, that would have put his own citizenship in jeopardy. Verse 29. So as those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, and he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him. Good news for Paul, right? And it says in the text, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and he commanded the chief priest and the council to meet and brought Paul down and set him before them. What was the real reason? What's the real reason Paul is being attacked by the Jews? Because he's proclaiming Christ. And he's proclaiming that God, through Christ, has a plan for the Gentile people. That the gospel is the entrance for both Jew 
and Gentile. Now, out of curiosity, we could stop there just as dramatic fashion as last week and just go, we'll do it next week. Um, How many of you like just to see the next few verses? Because I think it ends in a pretty dramatic way. Can you show of hands? Any of you want to get to Luby's real quick? You want to beat the Baptists? That was an unkind shot. Uh, Cheap laugh, but it was good. Okay, let's look look at chapter 23. Because Paul is brought before the council the next day. This is the high Jewish council. This is the Sanhedrin. And Paul, it says in the text, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. I have lived a righteous life. I'm being faithful to the Lord at that. And Ananias had heard enough. And he's being presented before the council to be questioned, but the first thing they do is punch him in the face. I don't know about you, but there's a point where I'm just like, I've had enough. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Again, Paul had not been tried. He hadn't been tried in a Jewish court. He hadn't been tried in a Roman court. He was about to be flogged. Now he's punched in the face. And I think at this point, Paul finally just lost his temper, which is, which is interesting because I lose my temper when I get cut off on the highway. He has a pretty deep tank uh, before he gets upset. Verse 3, Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Are you sitting there to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. He calls him a whitewashed wall, which you may not think is a big cut down. You're like, oh, Wow. <laughs> That's pretty mean, a whitewashed wall. But what it meant was, you hypocrite. So true of Ananias, we come to discover through history, he was one of the least respected high priests known for his greed and his gluttony. Paul says, you were a whitewashed wall. A whitewashed wall was a wall that was dirty, and whitewash would be applied to make it look all clean and pretty, but underneath was nothing but dirt. It's like, you strike me? God is going to strike you. Paul is quickly rebuked, and I got to say, I appreciate his humility, whether it was sarcastic or not. I don't know, but you ever say something out of anger and then in pride refuse to apologize? I'm going to say that again. I don't think that registered. Because <laughs> this is getting personal. Have you ever this morning said... <laughs> You have, have you ever said something in anger and then in pride refused to apologize? Some of the spouses are like, I hope you're listening. <laughs> Don't worry if not. I'll just get it on Facebook. We'll look at it again together. It is so common, but I love how Paul, I believe he spoke in anger, but he does not stick to it in pride. He actually apologizes. Look at this. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Whether Paul didn't know or not, I don't know. But Paul, look at Paul. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul gets downright biblical. He's like, look, you're right. I I blew it. And then in verse 6, he spins the whole group of the high priest counsel into a frenzy. This is awesome. He picks it like an old scab, which is a gross metaphor, but nonetheless, verse 6, 
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of Pharisees. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. When he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they started fighting among themselves. We may not realize it, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees had startlingly different viewpoints and theological perspectives. In verse 8, Luke tells us why there's such a dissension. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. That's kind of problematic when it comes to the gospel, right? What is the central tenet of the gospel? Jesus rose from the dead. They rejected resurrection. They rejected angelic uh, beings, and they rejected the spirit. I'm left with, like, what did they believe in? But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Luke here tips the hand and says, hey, the Pharisees were actually really close to faith. In fact, they step up and defend Paul. It says, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? How close are they to faith? They're just like right on the doorstep. There are some people that are just like right on the edge of faith. And then there was dissension. It became violent. Again, the tribune had to intervene. This is the third time they had to intervene on behalf of Paul. They were about to tear him to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away by force, and bring him back to the barracks. He has no idea. He's no further down the road than he was before. But this is the night, or the next day, that the Lord speaks to Paul. And this is really what I wanted to get to. This verse to me has been very encouraging. There are times when circumstances in our life Times when circumstances feel like God has taken us so far and he's going to drop us. And we start to get really worried because things get really hard. Paul is going to face some unbelievable brutality over the next few years in the text. People are going to try to kill him. In fact, next week we're going to see there's this like clandestine effort. These guys are going to swear to not eat food until they kill Paul. Uh, He's going to face... Uh, all kinds of accusations. He's going to stand before different Roman leaders. He's going to, in fact, go through an entire uh, journey by ship that ends in a shipwreck. But all the while, Paul is completely confident that he's not going to die because he is told he's going to make it to Rome. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said to him, Take courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, So you must also testify of me in Rome. What did the Lord just tell Paul? No matter what he faces, no matter what he goes through, he's going to make it to Rome. And I'm going to use that as a metaphor for all of our lives. We all have a Rome. There is a destination that we are going to make it to. And no matter what you face in this life, you're going to make it to Rome. Whether it's the Rome in this life or it's the Rome in the next life, I'll tell you, we got hope beyond this life, don't we? We have a hope that is substantial. In fact, it is the greatest hope that no matter what we face in this life, when we take our last breath here, we will take our first breath in eternity in his presence. That is a hope you can hang a life on. So no matter what we are facing, pray this as an encouragement. You're going to make it to Rome, whatever the Rome is in your life. Let's talk about some applications. First one is this. The power of your testimony. You may not think you have the powerful testimony. You may be like, ah, my testimony, yeah, you know. That other person, they've got a powerful testimony. You should hear their testimony. And I'm like, no, 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 no. 
We should hear your testimony. Every testimony is powerful. There's something that each of us possess that's that testimony of what Christ has done in our life. There is who we once were, how Christ intervened, and who we are now, and who God is going to make us into. Family, that's powerful. Just as Paul shared his testimony of what Christ had done in his life, we're encouraged to do the same. Some people are going to hear it. Some people are going to reject it. But some people are going to listen, and they're going to believe because of the power of Christ in your life. I have had people come up to me and go, Chris, I opened my life to believe because I heard of the power of Christ in your life. The same is true for all of us. It is powerful. There is one thing for sure. A testimony has power. This is who I was and this is who I am. And the difference between the two people is Jesus. But I want to point this out. It is impossible to share a testimony you do not have. It is impossible to share a testimony you do not have. If you cannot personally testify to the saving work of Christ in your life and the evident change that has taken place since then, I want, to strongly I want you to consider this. Are you truly a Christian? If there is no power of Christ evidenced in you, no calling, no, calling, no greater purpose, and if there's never been... I would be deeply concerned. And so that leads to secondly, when did it happen? When was it in your life that Christ powerfully interrupted your journey? When was your spiritual blindness exposed? When was the first time you came to see Jesus for who he really is? The son of God who took off heavenly robes of glory to put on human flesh to suffer and die though sinless on the cross for our sins to be buried and rise from the dead. When did you trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul? When was the day that Christ powerfully intervened in your life? and interrupted your life, and you came to discover God's will for your life, and saw Jesus through the power of his word and received his mission, when were you baptized in obedience of following Christ? How has faith in Christ changed your life? If you look at that question, when did it happen, and you think, well, it hasn't. The scriptures declare that salvation is near. It is here this morning. Christ is wanting to interrupt your life. Receive the gift of salvation. Have your sins washed away. And then finally, the confidence and courage to go forward. I feel like some of us need some courage today to keep walking forward. I don't know if any of you feel like quitting whatever it is. Or it seems like it's too insurmountable. Or you're not going to make it. But just as Paul was encouraged, you're going to make it to Rome. You're going to testify. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And I believe it's semi-biblical. Wasn't it Jesus who said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Is that in the Bible? That seems semi-biblical, doesn't it? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion? Is that biblical? Family, it is time we start building our life on biblical truth. 
and not on the fears that are peddled by our culture or even our overwhelmed minds. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace, your goodness. Your scriptures declare from your fullness we have received grace upon grace. This is this grace sandwich, and our souls are hungry. We need grace for the moment. We need grace for today. We need grace for tomorrow. And so, Lord Jesus, we turn our hearts and our attention again towards you. To you who are here today, and you do not have any recollection of a time where you invited Christ into your life, where you asked him to come into your life, that you believed in him. I want you to hear this, friend. Jesus died for you. He was buried and he is risen. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Your sins washed away. And when you woke up this morning, you were separated from God, spiritually dead, blind. But you can lay your head down on your pillow tonight, alive in Christ, cleansed, forgiven. The Bible says it is all by faith. So if that is you today and you want to receive Jesus as your Savior in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me and I believe you were buried and I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've just received eternal life. You are cleansed, forgiven whole, home, enveloped in his love, a son or a daughter of God. Welcome to the family. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we are aware of your will, your purposes, and that there's nothing more important than fulfilling those in our life. Give us courage today to keep living the Christian life, to keep pursuing you, to continue fighting that good fight. The encouragement that there is stored up for us, incredible eternal rewards. We look forward to that day. Whereas now we see you dimly, we shall see you face to face. In the presence of our King, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together, family. Because it is time for us to go into the world. I hope you enjoyed this sacred space this morning. But it is time. Go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all to we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now go share that love with the world. We're called to love. Let us lavish it. Have a great week.